Hi, I'm Dennis Hester, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Church Watauga, and we are grateful that you have tuned in to listen to these messages, either through our podcast or on our website. And as you listen to these, our prayer is that you would hear the Lord speak to you from His Holy Word. If you're interested in learning more about the church, you can get on our website at fbcwatauga.org. From there, there's a place where you can plan a visit, you can learn more about our beliefs. You can also request prayer through the prayer request page. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. The most important thing that I'd communicate to you is as you listen to God's Word, that you find a place to get plugged into a local congregation, whether it's here at First Baptist or another local church where you live. If you'd like information or would like us to help you find a church home, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. And you can contact us through our Facebook page. So God bless you as you listen to His Word, and may the Lord encourage you in your walk. I appreciate the simplicity of that song, the focus on Jesus, who is our life. He is the one who forgives us. He's the one who died for us. He is the king, and he is uh, the one worthy of our worship. We live in a time where things seem to be very complicated. And, uh, you know, when you turn on the TVs right now, we've gone from one crisis to the next, and that's not new. Uh, just it's, uh, the volume has been turned up on 2020. Uh, the crises seem to be a whole lot louder and a whole lot more destructive. And it, it just seems to be a never-ending cycle, and, and just a, it creates all kinds of a confusion for us. As we continue to walk through John, we're going to today come to a passage that kind of is right before Jesus's ministry begins. Uh, last week, we looked at a little bit from what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus, and today is a little bit more of that interaction between Jesus and especially today's message is Jesus's interaction with John the Baptist's disciples. And uh, this is not the, the call, so to speak, of the disciples, we see in the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, a little bit more clear delineation of the chronology of how Peter was called uh, and, and, and how the disciples formally joined him. What we see here are for these guys in particular who were followers of John the Baptist, who now have been introduced to Christ, and they're wanting to follow him. Uh, and so you see a little bit of that uh, that, that pre-relationship uh, building, so to speak. As, as Jesus, these disciples are starting to see Jesus for the first time, and they're gonna make a decision to follow him. Talked about it last week, how John the Baptist's role was not to be the great leader. His role was to point to Jesus, and so this is him giving up his disciples to follow Christ to some extent. Now, one of the things, that, as I look through this passage, and a lot of different in interesting little tidbits. One of the tidbits I mentioned in the early service was you learn from this who John's readers primarily were. Uh, John, the author of this gospel, as he writes this passage, there's three times, and you'll notice those three times, where he gives you a word and then he explains it. It's a word that would have been well known uh, to the Jewish people of his day. The Hebrews would have been well acquainted with it, but his primary audience, who were gonna be uh, Gentile readers, uh, wouldn't have understood those words. And so you see him explain them. And uh, so there's a lot of, of uh, neat little directions here. But what I wanted to do as we look at this passage is just kind of bring some simplicity to it. Because I think that far too often we overcomplicate the message of Jesus Christ. We, and in doing so, we overcomplicate 
our lives. In recent months, a couple months ago, I, I became aware of a discussion, uh, a theological, philosophical, sociological issue that I really didn't even know was out there. And it was, uh, I, I became most attuned to it uh, during the Southern Baptist Convention Conference. It was kind of all online this year. And they got into this long discussion, and, and I'm going to give you the name of it here. Uh, it, it's called Critical Race Theory. And the connection of that between Christianity. And bottom line is, is it's an overcomplication of a, a, a sociological study and trying to bring it in and apply it to Christianity and, and tie it to another big word, intersectionality and, and all of this stuff. And it, it creates this convoluted mess of, of how we're supposed to see uh, our relationship with Christ, how we're supposed to be disciples, and, and, and how we're supposed to uh, confess our, uh, our, our uh, uh, faith, when in reality, discipleship, as Jesus presented it, is very simple. One of my favorite passages that deals with this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where the apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, you're being deceived from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul argued, I, I've made it very simple. I have helped unite you to, to, to one person, to, to, to one uh, bride and groom, one, one relationship, and that relationship is you and Jesus. But you're allowing all these philosophies and all these other things from the enemy to distract you from the one who matters. The bottom line is, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one thing matters, and that is focusing on and following Jesus. There's all kinds of philosophies, there's all kinds of political uh, theories, there's all kinds of stuff you can buy into, but Jesus is the answer. In fact, I, I went ahead and put this quote up so you could see it today. Sin is our problem, and Jesus is our answer. Sin, the, the, the root of sin in our hearts is what creates, creates racism. The root of sin in our heart is what creates uh, gossip. It, it, it's the root of lies. It's the root of deceit. It's the root of greed. Sin It's the problem that we have. And the answer to that is not some convoluted philosophy or theory or theology even. The, the answer to that is the simple gospel message because Jesus Christ can deal with the issue of sin. And when Jesus deals with the issue of sin, those other societal ills disappear. And so it, it behooves us to focus on, in God's word, the simplicity of the gospel. I wrote it, I added this, scripture and scripture alone should be our authority in understanding and addressing the underlying issues in society. Scripture and scripture alone is our authority. Not that we can't learn from observation and other uh, ideas, but Scripture is our authority. It is what we're going to come to to understand and, and to deal with the most basic issue in life, and that is sin. Read with me, John chapter 1. John, the message, this passage today is just a narrative. It's a story. And so we'll read it as a story, and then I want to draw some simple principles for discipleship from it. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus pass by, and he said, look, the Lamb of God. 
Now, if that sounds familiar, we're not repeating what we read last week. Uh, the day before, John was out there by himself. He was out there with a crowd, but not, not with these particular disciples when he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And so this is the next day. John is with two of his disciples. And when he sees Jesus passing by and he says, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he said, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Pause for just a moment. I got tickled. Every time I read this, I get a little bit tickled because it's almost like Jesus says, well, there's a man with a pure heart. And Nathanael goes, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah, that's me. I get a kick out of that. I don't know if anybody else does. So Nathaniel, uh, Jesus replies to him, uh, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So as we walk through this story, I want to focus on uh, three primary points and we'll look at, at some subpoints under those. And uh, you know, one of the, the things that, that you'll like, I hope Susan loves about this message is I started all three points with the letter R. She's always kind of proud of me when I do that. It helps her remember things. And so... Uh, here, uh, the first thing that I want you to see is that to the simple message of the gospel, simple discipleship is simply following a command. You respond to a simple command from Jesus Christ. You see this in both of these paragraphs. In the first paragraph, the first couple disciples simply followed Jesus. The scripture says they followed him. In the second paragraph, you see Jesus come to Philip and he tells Philip, follow me. And that becomes a theme that you'll see. You'll see it in the Gospel of John later on. You see it when Jesus officially calls Peter out of the boat to finally drop his nets and follow him wholeheartedly. You see it at the end of the Gospel of John. But there, there's, I want us to focus on two things here. The first one is following and the second is the object of our fellowship. Uh, because the, the simple, what it simply means to be a disciple is to follow. It means to keep our eyes on Jesus and go after him. Now, he becomes the object of what we're following. That's important too. Because sometimes we get derailed by all kinds of other things. 
but this idea of following is crucial. Disciples of Jesus Christ in his day put down their nets, put down their jobs, and they followed him. They walked with him. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a disciple. It means to follow him. I used a, uh, this illustration because if you ever tried to follow somebody in traffic in the Metroplex, you, you're going to go to a new restaurant or you're going to go to somebody's house and they're going to say, hey, just follow me, yeah, just stick with me, just follow me and we'll get there. You don't have any directions. If you lose sight of this guy's, this person's taillights, you're lost. And so they say, follow me. It behooves you to do the very best that you can to keep your eyes on that car, to keep your eyes on that license plate and taillight and follow that person as closely and as exactly as you can. It's, you, you, you've got to be careful not to be distracted by, by looking over here. You look over here and you'll lose them. You look over there, you'll lose them. You've got you to pay attention to where you're going and you have to follow that vehicle in front of you. That's truly what it means to follow. Pay attention, focus, and go that direction. They turn right, you turn right. They speed up, you speed up. They slow down, you slow down. It's important to be a good follower, to keep your eyes and your focus on the one who you are following. Now, one of the most important parts, in fact, I would argue the most important part of this equation is not the follower, but is who you're following. Because if you're not a good leader, if, 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 if you don't, pay attention to what's going on to the person behind you, or, or you run a, a yellow light and that person gets stopped at a red light, you can lose your follower, right? You, you, so you, you, there's gotta be a good leader involved in this. Well, there's no question in our equation, in this example, if we're gonna follow Jesus, he is the perfect leader. You don't have to worry about the quality of the person in front. You don't have to worry about that person getting lost. You don't have to worry about Jesus going the wrong direction, leading you astray, turning left when he should have turned right. You don't have to worry about that because if you follow Jesus, you're following the right person. Now, anybody else that you choose to follow in this world, you've set yourself up for trouble. Whether it be a political candidate as we enter into this election season, if you make that person your key leader and you focus in on them and you're gonna follow them regardless of whatever else is going on around you, you're gonna get yourself in trouble because the quality, whether or not you get to the, the destination that you're wanting to go to is gonna be dependent on the quality of the leader. And it's gonna be dependent upon whether you keep your eyes on that leader and you follow them intently. I'm not saying that it's an easy thing if I told you to follow me to Duncanville and we're gonna to go to a particular restaurant over there, between here and Duncanville, there's a lot of ways to get lost and get separated. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's simple. It's not convoluted. It's not crazy. Keep your eyes on Jesus and go where he goes. Do what he says, right? You begin that by reading his word. You get to know him through his word. But, but the good news is, just as Jesus told his disciples over in John 16, he said, even after I go, when I ascend to the right hand of the Father, I'm gonna send my spirit who's gonna be with you and he's gonna be in you. And so if we are faithful to spend time in his word, to seek him with all of our heart, keep our eyes focused on him and trust him, his spirit will also lead us and we can trust his Holy Spirit to accomplish his purpose. 
And we can trust God who reigns over the universe to establish the circumstances and lay the groundwork. He is a trustworthy God. He is worthy of our fellowship. But we have to keep our focus on him and follow him. And so you see that here, and you'll see it later on. And it's, yeah, it's easy to get distracted from it. Even Peter, I love Peter. And you know, Peter's the one we're dealing with here. And Peter has to be told several times to follow me. One of my favorite times is at the end of the Gospel of John. When you come to the end of the Gospel of John, even there, Jesus has this discussion with Peter and calling Peter to be the pastor of the early church. And then they stand up from the campfire and Jesus begins to walk and he says, Peter, follow me. You know what Peter does? He turns around and says, well, what about John? Jesus said, you don't worry about what John's doing. If, John, if I want John to stay there by that campfire until I come back, then John should stay there. You follow me. I think we need to hear those words clearly over and over and over from Jesus. Follow me. Follow Jesus. Don't follow a sociological theory, a psychological theory, a political theory, a political person. Follow Jesus. He and he alone is worthy of our attention. Second, receive the new life that he offers us. And you see that expressed in this text in a couple different ways. For Peter, he got a new name. He said, uh, there, when, when, when Peter began to follow him, Jesus said to him, you're Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, that's, that's kind of illustrative for us because when Jesus comes to us, when, he, when we begin to follow him and, and he is our Lord, he changes us, he transforms us. I love it, it, the, the lyrics of an old song, and, and I, I don't remember all the lyrics. Susan could probably sing it for you. It was one of those in the Shape Note hymnal back in May that we used to sing a lot. And there's, there's a, a, a phrase in there that says, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Yes, it's mine. That new name is, that's written down is the name God gives us when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we receive from Christ new life. We follow Christ. We, we respond to that simple command to follow him. We receive new life and he gives us a new name. He gives us a clear command. I'm not going to rehash that because Jesus gives us the marching orders that we need. We don't need any other marching orders. All we need to do is hear what he's called us to do. If we'll follow him, we'll end up at the right place. And, but as we receive new life and we receive this command, he gives us a full and meaningful life that is filled with purpose. I stumble over this because every once in a while I kind of go back and forth. What is the best part of being a follower of Jesus? What's the best part of Christianity? Is it the fact that when I take my last breath on this earth, I'm going to wake up with him for all of eternity? That's great. But is that, is that not any better? Or is that better than, than the life that Christ has given me now? Because my life now has meaning. My life has purpose. If I follow Christ and I do what he's called me to do, things that, that, that he calls me to do in an everyday life will have eternal significance. Many of y'all know that this uh, Friday I got to go see my mom. It's the first time I, uh, that I've gotten to see her since Christmas. She... Uh, went into a memory care facility the week of spring break. We'd been working toward that for a long time. 
Did not know, obviously, that the day after she went in, we'd go into a COVID lockdown. No family member had been allowed to see her since then until my sister went for 15 minutes last week. I got to go Friday. And, and it was uh, all kinds of, you can imagine, a convoluted emotions. I stopped by mom's house. I got down to Austin a little bit early because I, or Cedar Park. I was worried about traffic. So I got there a little bit earlier, swung by her house to take up a, pick up a couple things and sign a form that I had to have. And, and I noticed, and when I went into her sewing room, a, uh, a sign that was on the floor uh, that brought back a lot of reminders. It was uh, a Virginia Hester Citizen of the Year. Now, my mom and dad moved to Cedar Park before it was a town. Uh, my dad was on one of the very first city councils. My dad helped bring uh, water to Cedar Park because it wasn't even a town when they moved there. Uh, he was a fire, the fire chief for uh, 10 of the first 12 years that the fire department was in existence. My mom launched the first responders program because they, there wasn't an ambulance on our side of the county. My mom hated the sight of blood, but she became an ENT so that she could volunteer to go work wrecks and go to people's homes when they had heart attacks and accidents. And because of that, both mom and dad at some point over those years, uh, were recognized by the city of Cedar Park as the citizen of the year. Now, that, it, it struck me greatly because, of course, even when I was young, Cedar Park was so tiny. Well, now Cedar Park has 80,000 citizens, 80, a population of over 80,000. And mom is now in this memory care facility, still in Cedar Park, Texas, and there's probably, you could probably count on one hand the number of people in Cedar Park that even know her. All the, the community involvement, all the work that they did to lay the foundation for the city, which is a, a pretty cool city north of, of Austin, all of that, that ministry, service that they did is forgotten. People won't remember that. When she has her funeral, the city of Cedar Park will probably send flowers and they'll probably do like they did for my dad and they'll name a day Virginia Hester Day. They did it on my dad's birthday after he had passed away. But then it'll long be forgotten, and there won't be many people that know that anyway. But there's one thing that, that, that won't be lost. Mom also was the one who made sure that I came to know Christ as Savior. She's the one who made sure that I went to church. She's the one who, who though my dad was a believer, my mom was the one who made sure that I came to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that has an internal eternal impact on me. That's going to be remembered in glory. That's going to be remembered long after mom's died. There, there's a, a chorus of, of angelic beings that know that. And they know the difference that because mom had an impact on me coming to Christ, the impact that, that I've had on others who came to Christ, that gives life meaning that goes beyond the grave. And yes, it's sad. I, I, I looked at those pictures as I, as I looked at a picture and remembered mom when she was two years and eight or nine months old hunting Easter eggs on the deck of the USS California as it was uh, docked in Long Beach as a little toddler and then remember seeing her Friday who she didn't even know who I was. There's a lot of things that went on in between there. And a whole lot of that was meaningful and matters and made a difference in people's lives. But there's a couple things that are eternal. And when we give our lives to Christ, we receive new life and new purpose that is eternal, that lasts beyond the grave. 
You can feed the hungry, you can care for the homeless, but if you bring them into a relationship or help them come to faith in Jesus Christ, it impacts them forever. It makes an eternal difference. And only Jesus does that. So the simple, the simplicity of the gospel is to respond to the command, receive the new life that we have in Christ. It comes with new purpose. And then finally, recognize Jesus for who he is. Now I'm gonna pause for just a moment because I recognize that a typical evangelistic message would go in reverse of this. A, 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 a evangelist or a, a minister may stand and say, you've got to confess. You have to recognize who Christ is and confess who he is. And then you receive new life and then you follow him. But you know what the truth is in real life? It usually just doesn't work out that simple or that, that, that directly for everybody. There's some people who start trying to follow Jesus and then they figure out who he is. There's some people who they've never heard of him before and you sit down and you share the good news with them and they receive him as their Lord and then they begin to confess who he is. Because we as humans come to Christ and, and interact and, and God interacts with us in different ways. We're gonna find in the Gospel of John that Jesus dealt with all kinds of people in different ways. He never changed the core truth of the message, but he changed how he delivered the message. He delivered it differently to Nicodemus than he did the woman at the well. And you see things like that time and time again. And so what we see here as we walk through this text is the simplicity of, a, of discipleship. It's following Christ. Responding to that simple command, receiving the new life that we have in him, and recognizing Jesus for who he is. Well, who is he? There's three timeless primary truths or, or titles that are given to Jesus in this text. The first one we've seen, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist says. Jesus came to this earth as the Lamb of God. That, that is a, a reminder to us, and it was especially those who were reading John's gospel, it's a reminder that Jesus came as a sacrificial offering for our sins. Jesus came as a sacrificial lamb to die on the cross. He's identified with, with the message of Isaiah that there's gonna be a lamb who's gonna be slain. His blood is gonna be shed so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. Jesus came as a lamb of God. And we confess, we recognize that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who died on the cross so that I could have forgiveness of my sins, so that you could have forgiveness of your sins. Second, you see this in Nathaniel's confession. Nathaniel says, you are the Son of God. Not only was Jesus the sacrificial lamb who came and shed his blood and died on the cross, but Jesus as the son of God, as John has called him, God himself, the word who was, even at the very beginning. Jesus as God could not be killed, could not die. Jesus, the son of God, was life. Jesus himself says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so even though the enemy, the serpent, thought that he could put Jesus down and kill him, he couldn't. Jesus' body became a sacrifice for our, our sins as he bled and died on that cross, but the Son of God could not stay in the grave and would not stay in the grave, and he rose again because he was the creator of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, Scripture says. Jesus was not just a sacrificial lamb, but he's also the son of God who rose again, victorious over death and hell and the grave. 
And, and then you see the confession here from Nathaniel as well in the last part of verse 49 when he says, you are the king of Israel. Now, Jesus ended up being way more than the king of Israel, and John's going to flesh that out. As we said, John's kind of got a thesis going here, and you'll see these little things run throughout it. Because when we come to the end of the Gospel of John, you get down to verse uh, chapter 18, you see this interaction where they, they accuse him of claiming to be a king, and Pilate looks at Jesus and says, are you really a king? And Jesus says, yep. He said, now my kingdom's not of this world. My, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would fight for me. But my kingdom's not of this world. That's why my disciples aren't standing up to fight for me. But I am the king. Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so when we recognize who Jesus is, we recognize that he came as a sacrificial lamb who shed his blood to die for us. We recognize that he's the son of God who in him is life. But we also recognize that he is the king, not just of Israel, but the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the king of the universe. You know, I've often wondered when I look out at the vast expanse of the stars, especially when I get away from the city lights, and either I'm, I'm out on one of my camping trips or I'm out in Throckmorton out there on the, the, the deer lease, and, and, and you're away from all the lights, and you just see the, the brilliant millions of stars. And my eyes have gotten weak as I've gotten into my 40s and 50s, so I get the binoculars out, and the sky just explodes with stars. And we see a God who has created the heavens, who resides in the heavens, Scripture says sometimes. But Scripture also says that God is above the heavens. I start wondering, where is he up there? In all of the heavens, where is he? And the truth is, he's above it all. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he comes back next time, he's coming back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Scripture Revelation says he'll have it printed on him. It'll say on his thighs, King of kings and Lord of lords, as he returns. Jesus is the king. And so discipleship, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's just not that complicated. I'm not saying it's easy again, but it's not that complicated. We confess he is who he says he is. We receive the life that he gives us, and we follow him. We respond to that simple command to follow him. Jesus noticed Jesus did not tell his, he didn't tell Andrew and Peter and John and James, okay, before you follow me, you gotta go get your degree. Before you follow me, you gotta take a six-week class to learn who I really am. Before you follow me, you've gotta do these things. Discipleship was understanding who Jesus was, receiving his offer of new life and following him. If we will truly follow Christ, we'll be okay. We won't have to get too caught up in intersectionality or critical race theory because Jesus will teach us to treat each other with love and compassion. You know, especially for us, the majority of us, and we've, we've got pretty diverse congregation actually, but, but for the majority of us that, that live in, in a, a predominantly uh, white neighborhoods, you know, or white culture at least in the United States, if we have an issue with racism, then we must not know Jesus very well because his skin wasn't exactly our color. Jesus 
is above and beyond all of that. And when we follow him, he deals with our sin. He deals with the sin of, of, of abhorrent sexual issues. He deals with the sins of racism. He deals with, with the sin of, of destructive things that we do to our bodies. Jesus will deal with the sin of lying and, 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 and the garbage that, that, that hurts our relationships with one another. If we will truly follow Jesus, we'll find the answer to the issues that we're having, that we have personally, and that we have in our culture. 